0: Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Gross! Gross isn't in the text, I just added that. But it's implied. In verse 12 it says, When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the old patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. The chapter began with a miracle. Jesus healed a paralytic in verses 1 through 8. And now Matthew will insert part of his own testimony. Jesus calls Matthew in verse 9. He summons Matthew to be a a disciple. And then a celebration breaks out in verse 10. But then criticism rears its ugly head in verse 11. Jesus chastens and then rebukes the religious leaders... Jesus, he says, has has come to call sinners to repentance, not those who think that they're already good enough. At the end of the section, an inquiry is made by some of John the Baptist's followers. They want to know why the disciples of Jesus don't fast. And so Jesus will provide an illustration of a bridegroom and a wedding. A wedding is a time for celebration and not mourning. And so Jesus will further illustrate the principle by making reference to the fact that old garments can't be patched by that which is new or new cloth in verse 16. New wine is poured into old wineskins in verse 17. There are certain things that don't belong together. Sometimes we can't put that which is fresh with that which is stale Sometimes we can't take legalism and the law and place it with grace. And so, we understand something. That life with Jesus and following Jesus and loving Jesus and serving Jesus can never be considered as a patch to cover up Where Judaism has failed or where some other worldview has somehow failed you. That somehow Jesus is just simply that which you need in order to make an insufficient or a deficient life sufficient. When Jesus calls us to follow him, we have to be prepared for celebration. We have to be prepared for criticism. And sometimes we have to be prepared for contempt look what it says in verse 9, the king calls sinners. And so immediately we discover something that you qualify. In verse 9 it says, "As Jesus passed on from there? Remember what we've already learned. Jesus has went across the Sea of Galilee. He's been on the east side of the lake. Now he returns to the west side of the lake and he will find himself in Capernaum. And remember, as Jesus passes from there, it says he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now again, understand, as Jesus crosses the lake and he comes down the hill, it's the perfect location for a toll booth or a tax office. Before we go there, though, we're reminded by the text of something important that we shouldn't overlook. Read it for yourself. As Jesus passed on from there, He saw Matthew. He said to him, Follow me. We might be tempted to begin with Matthew, but let's focus on what Jesus does. Jesus sees Matthew, Jesus speaks. Matthew responds to Jesus, and this becomes so very, very important to each and every one of you, because the Christian, the Christian, the Christian is called by Christ, not by Gino or any other preacher or teacher. The Bible says no one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. The truth is if I can talk you into being a follower of Jesus, someone more clever than me can talk you out of it. The real Jesus calls real people, and most of you have been called by Jesus. You remember hearing his voice. You remember him speaking to your heart. You remember him telling you, inviting you to turn from your sin and embrace him as the Savior. And so, the significance of that passage... Also, includes the fact that the author of the gospel, the one we've been studying up to this point, is the one who's being called. In modesty and humility, he doesn't tell the whole story. If you'd like to know that, it's found in Mark's passage and Luke's passage. They fill in the gaps. In Mark's gospel and Luke, they call him Levi or Levi. Here, he's called Matthew. Perhaps this is the name that's been given to him by Jesus, and so he chooses to retain it. It could be that Levi is his, his birth-given name, but here Matthew calls himself Matthew. And by the way, the name means the gift of God, but I don't think he means it in the way that sometimes we might think of that name. Well, of course you're the gift of God. No, it means that he has been given as a gift to the body of Christ by God. And by the way, in chapter 10, verse 3, if you just turn the page of your Bible to chapter 10, verse 3, you'll read Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. That's how he self-identifies in the very next chapter. Tax collector is the Greek word publicani, not to be confused with republicani. It's not that. It means the person who collects the tax. And so, again, think about where Matthew is when Jesus calls him. He's at the tax office, or the revised version rightly says, the toll booth, or the place of the toll. The Jews reading this word at the toll booth or sitting at the place of the toll would mean that Matthew collected taxes for the Roman government. This would have been a choice place to collect the taxes because it was heavily, heavily trafficked and the Jews would have seen Matthew as vile and corrupt and evil and a traitor and you might be wondering why because Capernaum was occupied by Rome. And remember Matthew is... Publicani, he would have been viewed with hatred and animosity, not simply because he collects the tithes, but be, or because he collects the taxes, but because he's aligned himself with the occupying government of Rome. He, his job is to tax his own people. And in order for you to understand a little bit of how it worked in the ancient world... In the ancient world, a person could petition the Roman government to have a tax franchise. Some of you are familiar with McDonald's, which originated in Southern California, and the Hell's Angels, which originated in Southern California, and Disneyland, which originated in Southern California. A lot of really good things and kind of weird things can come out of Southern California. In this particular world, You could get a franchise. You could franchise taxes. You could petition the government for the right to collect taxes from a certain area. You would purchase the right. Now, again, if we're putting it in our own culture and society, imagine you've purchased the right from C-470 to E-470 as you're going east on the evil toll road. And as people are on the evil toll road, you get charged for being on that road. And imagine the government says, "We want $1 for every person who goes on the evil toll road," and you're the tax collector and you charge a dollar and 50 cents. So a dollar will go to the government and 50 cents will go into your pocket. This allowed the person to legally tax people for going down a certain road. And so they could tax, like I said, locals, strangers, travelers. The certain amount was required by the government. The rest went into their pocket, and the power was practically unlimited. And they had the Roman army to enforce this. And so, the tax collector had a license to steal and extort money. And I know what some of you are thinking. You mean just like? Now. But you begin to understand the tax collector was hated, sometimes feared, viewed with contempt. The scholar Alfred Edersheim, the Jewish scholar Alfred Edersheim, writes that the Jewish publicani were blackballed from normal Jewish life. They were refused entrance into the synagogue. They were forbidden to have any religious or social contact with religious Jews. They were ranked with unclean animals, something that no devout Jew would ever consider touching. And so to the God-fearing decent people of Capernaum, Matthew has the same status as a pig. And Luke provides us with a few more details. In chapter 5 of Luke's gospel, in verses 27 through 29, it says, After these things, he went out and he saw a tax collector, Levi, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. According to Luke's gospel, when Matthew left his post, it says, he got up. He left all. He knew that the Roman government wouldn't let him go back. You can't just simply walk away from the tax franchise. You don't just simply get to walk away from it and then get to go back to it. So he's making a powerful, fundamental choice. But it begs a question. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing when Jesus called you? You see, some of you in your own mind, you have that moment. Maybe it was as a young person or as a teenager or an older person. Where were you when Jesus called you? What were you doing? Maybe more important than where you were and what you were doing is something far more important. And that is, what were you? And now all of a sudden we begin to delve a little bit deeper into this person called Matthew who has written our gospel. Matthew's business was very lucrative. It's evidenced by the Matthew celebration. What do I mean? Remember the party that we just discovered in Luke's gospel. He was paid a great deal of money. And to be a tax collector, you had to quickly abandon any hope and any acceptance that you might be a part of polite Society, or even a part of polite religious society. You couldn't live your life with an appeal to what others thought of you. The moment that you decided to be a tax collector, you had to also decide you didn't care what other people thought, and you didn't care about going to church, and you didn't care about religious sensibilities. And so what was he thinking and were there any regrets and do you think that he had mixed emotions when he's leaving the past behind? What do you think when Jesus comes up to the table? Jesus looks into his eyes but he goes way beyond his eyes and he looks deep into his heart and deep into his soul and he says, come and follow me. Can you imagine his shock? Can you imagine the surprise me You want me? "Surely, Rabbi, you, you know who I am. You know where I am. You know what I've done. But when Jesus calls a person, he knows, he knows everything. He knows everything about their past, and he knows everything about their present, and he knows everything about their future. He knows about their weakness. He knows about their success. He knows about their failure. And the right response inside of each of our hearts should be, does he know? Does does, does he know about my sin? And the right answer, of course, is of course he knows about your sin. And he's willing to personally deal with your sin. Jesus will personally deal with your sin. Jesus will die for your sin. Jesus knows the truth about your sin. He will march to Calvary. He will die a cruel death. He will die for your sin. And you've got to understand something. Jesus will wipe the slate clean with his own blood. And I suspect that Matthew, very much like me, may have been voted most likely to go to hell by the solid citizens of Capernaum. You see, not everyone who comes to Christ lived in a world of protection and support, comfort, encouragement, and unconditional love. Amy Carmichael once wrote, I hear him call, come follow. That was all. Would you not follow if you heard him call? If you heard his voice, would you accept the invitation? The writer of this gospel knew that Jesus called the desperate, the despised, The outcast, the rejected, Matthew's calling records for all the sheer generosity of Jesus. Jesus knew that Matthew was one of those people who would have been despised and feared and rejected. And yet Jesus loved him and reached out to him and offers his hope and a future. And the words, the words that we're reading at this very moment came from a man. who adopted a way of living that almost certainly was marked by corruption, greed, selfishness, and then Jesus stops by and looks into his eyes. You see, if you've ever wondered if your sin disqualifies you from being a Jesus follower, Jesus is going to make it abundantly clear that only the sinner qualifies. Only the person who's in need of a Savior. The king accepts the sinner but he rejects the self-righteous. How do we know? Look what it says in verse 10. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Once again, Luke adds what Matthew modestly omits. Remember what I said in Luke chapter five, verse 29? The feast was initiated by Matthew. The feast was financed by Matthew. It could be that Matthew brings his fore- former companions into a closer contact with Jesus maybe it's so that they'll get to know Jesus maybe it's to honor the savior but whatever kind of friends he has well let's just ask let me ask you what kind of friends do you think a tax collector has just pretend like it's a pentecostal church and you can talk with me just for a moment just for a moment Tell me what kind of friends you think a tax collector has. Other tax collectors would be correct. That would be in part correct. But I think that there's something else. The kind of friends that a tax collector has is the kind of friends that only money can buy. Because look what it says. Many tax collectors and... Sinners! Who are these sinners? In verse 10. We might be tempted to fill that word with all kinds of titles. We might think of thieves or gangsters or thugs or prostitutes. And you might be right. But it might be something way more simple. It may have been simply not thieves and thugs and criminals. It could very well be that these are just simply people who impart would not refer to themselves as religious, but who would self-identify as spiritual. These could have been the people who don't go to temple. They don't go to synagogue. They don't perform the sacrifices. They don't really have religious sensibilities. You would think that these might be people who make no pretense of believing the Bible or trusting the Bible. I like to call this Matthew's celebration party. This is a party in Matthew's house. The guests are Matthew's guests. These are people who don't identify. These aren't the people who you're going to see at church. These are going to be people that you're going to see at a Bronco game even if it's only an uh, exhibition game. These might be otherwise somewhat healthy and, 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 and somewhat okay, but it could very well be that whoever they are, these are the people who aren't a part of the religious community. But what's really interesting to me about the party and the party that Matthew throws and the people who come they're intrigued by Jesus. Weren't you? Weren't you before you got saved? Do you have family members and friends, people out there, people who don't go to church? Don't you have some people who go, hey, you know what, Um, I'm not a church person and I'm not a Bible person and I'm not that kind of a person, but I am a person who's intrigued by Jesus. And this celebration may have been the first of many such celebrations that earns Jesus the reputation of being a friend of sinners. Certain social and political and cultural activities lend themselves to sin. Film, photography, entertainment, politics. If you're elected governor of the state of Illinois, you have a 50% chance of serving some time in the federal prison right here in Colorado. (laughs) Eugene Fields was a newspaper reporter in Chicago. He wrote in his column, half the aldermen in the city are crooks, and the mayor was outraged and he demanded a retraction. So the next day, Fields wrote, half the aldermen in the city are not crooks. It shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't surprise us that the people who don't self describe themselves that way distance themselves from religious people. Jesus comes for the sinner and not the self righteous. Someone might say, You know, I'm a good person. I read about you, Gino. In Chuck Smith's book, Harvest. (laughs) Or worse, Jerry Johnson's book on Satanism. It looks to me that in order to be a Calvary pastor, you have to be a drug addict or homeless or selfish or foolish. Some people might be tempted to say, I'm way better than you. And you would be right. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8. He said, God has given me grace. So that I. Less. Less than the least. Of the apostles. Have been given a wonderful privilege. To talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's probably true. You probably made less mistakes. You probably committed fewer sins, fewer grosser sins, fewer terrible sins. But the Bible says that God takes foolish men and, and women and he saves them. Jesus comes for those who need a savior. Does he come for prostitutes and publicans and Democrats? Oh, how did that get in my notes? Wait. I mean street people, I mean liberals, I mean conservatives, I mean drug addicts and sex addicts. Does Jesus come for all of these people? And the answer is yes. Some people think that Jesus is for gangsters and outlaws and bikers and rebels, and they are right. But Jesus comes for all people who recognize and confess and repent of their sin and trust. Trust him because the truth is it only takes one sin to permanently disqualify you from heaven and it only takes one savior to permanently qualify you for heaven. And so in verse 11, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when they saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You should see the parentheses. You should hear the disdain in the sentence itself. That's gross. The tax collector was considered the worst of sinners. In our culture, the worst sinner Who is the worst sinner? Why, people who deny climate change? Well, let, can't, let's see if we can go a little lower than that. <laughs> Who's the worst sinner? Is the worst sinner? People who hack babies to pieces in their mother's womb? Is the worst sinner? sexual predators, pedophiles? Are the worst sinners serial killers? Who are the worst sinners? Are the worst sinners the ones who, in the broader culture, believe sin is real and that it hurts people or that it could sentence you to hell? Could it be that in our culture, the worst sinner is the intolerant? Could it be that in our culture, the worst sinner is the one who dwells on sin or speaks about sin or considers sin a problem? And the religious leaders, I want you to look at the text. Look at the text. The Pharisees were not offended. The Pharisees aren't offended that sinners want to associate with Jesus. They're offended that Jesus would want to associate with sinners, Look at the text. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I'm going to suggest to you that the Pharisees were almost certainly aware of the Sermon on the Mount that was preached in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. They were aware of the healings that took place in Capernaum in chapter 8. They're aware of this paralytic. Jesus is just preached about true righteousness as opposed to false righteousness. Jesus has described the laws of the kingdom and the spiritual principles we're supposed to embrace. Jesus has preached that righteousness is inward and not simply outward. He has talked about the fact that there's an issue of the heart and that we have to deal with the heart. Jesus has preached about self-denial and fruit-bearing and the narrow way. And so how could he? How could he eat with a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners? Worse, how come Jesus didn't invite the good and decent people to this kind of a cool party? If Jesus were really a man of God, he would know that the best people in the world to party with are the self-appointed guardians of righteousness. Who's more fun than them? And what's interesting to me The religious leaders cornered the followers of Jesus. They weren't quite ready. They weren't quite ready. They weren't quite ready to confront Jesus face to face. And so they demanded an answer to a question that they had already answered in their own wicked heart. When they're asking the question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, I have another question for you. Do you think that they really want to know the answer to that question? By the way... When your family members and your friends and the people that you hang out with and the people who question about the world in which we live and the Jesus that's represented in the Bible and the God of the Bible, they're not quite ready to ask the God of their Bible and they're not quite ready to ask the Jesus in the Bible, so they ask you. They ask you. Well, how do you explain this, and how do you explain that? And if God is such a good God, and if God is such a wonderful God, then how do you explain this? How do you explain this? How do you explain that God is so narrow in who gets to heaven? How do you explain that he's so generous with people who want to go to heaven? Has anyone demanded an explanation from you about Jesus? And no matter what answer you gave them, it was never quite good enough. Why is Jesus so generous? Why is he so cruel? Why is he so narrow? Why is he so broad? In verse 12, it says, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The person who acknowledges their sickness will seek a cure. The person who never acknowledges their sickness won't seek a cure. I want you to think about what's happening in the text. The Lord is appealing first to logic and reason. Jesus would often quote the Old Testament passages, but sometimes Jesus would use good old-fashioned common sense. If the religious leaders are really spiritual, if they're morally perfect, if they don't need help from anyone and they don't need God's help, then what does it matter? The doctors of the law have already offered their diagnosis and treatment of the tax collectors and the sinners. They've already offered their diagnosis. These people are sick. These people are sick. These people are spiritually and morally sick. And so Jesus says, I agree with you. So who better to treat them than the great physician? By the way, what kind of a doctor despises sick people? I have a friend who actually did that. He he was top of his class, goes to medical school, goes four years through medical school, does his residency, starts hanging out with sick people and discovers he... He hates being around sick people. And you go, man, it's a tragedy to be you. Can you imagine devoting your whole life to doing a particular thing and discovering that you can't stand it? What kind of a doctor despises sick people? Doctors are in the business of healing. What kind of a doctor offers a diagnosis but no treatment plan? What kind of a doctor limits her practice to the healthy? Can you imagine? You're signing up under the new health plan, and you get a doctor, and the doctor says, I'm only taking patients who are perfectly well. What happens if I get sick? Can't be my patient anymore. What? We call that person a quack. The whole world is morally and spiritually sick. And we're sin carriers, but the religious leaders are blind. They can't see sin and its ugliness in others. They can see it clearly in others, but they can't see it in themselves. They're able to see the worst defects in others. And somehow they're unable to see the defects in themselves. John MacArthur writes, quote, They were so pleased with themselves that they considered their enemies God's enemies. They were so convinced of their own doctrinal rightness that any belief or standard contrary to their own was by definition ungodly and heretical, unquote. They were so narrow-minded that they could see through a keyhole with both eyes. That's fairly narrow-minded. It's interesting to me. The religious leaders are convinced that they're spiritual, that they're moral, they're good. They go to synagogue. They read their Bible, in Hebrew no less. They pray. They fast. They observe the law from their perspective. To question their holiness is to question the holiness of God. How could Jesus snub good folk and befriend sinners? Why in the world would Jesus laugh with the sinners but not cry with the saints? Since to the legalist and the hypocrite, (laughs) the saints are much more fun. The opposition would grow. And so Jesus responds to them. Look at verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You might miss it if you overlook it. Read the text again. But go. Jesus has appealed to reason and logic. But now he will quote the scripture. The simple expression, but go, probably means Go to the synagogue. Go to the place where you can find the scroll of Hosea because that's what he's quoting from. He's he's quoting from Hosea chapter six, verse six, and not everybody had access to this scroll, and so it probably would have meant go to the place where you can find a copy of the Torah. Go to the place where you can find the Ketubim and the Netubim. Go to the place where you can unravel the scroll, and he's quoting in this case from Hosea chapter six, verse six, and in order to get to Hosea, Chapter 6, verse 6. You've got to go through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. The verse reads, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. He's quoting the Greek Septuagint, which was translated in the second century BC from the Hebrew into the Greek. Vindicating his actions. He's saying, You want to know the reason why I'm doing this? I'm going to open up my Bible and tell you. And this becomes an important point for each and every one of you because when people ask you questions and people ask Jesus questions, don't be afraid to go to your Bible to get the answer to your questions. Jesus is a Bible teacher, he's a public Bible teacher. He says, showing mercy to those who are trapped in sin and showing mercy to those who are enslaved by sin. And then he announces his plan of salvation. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Listen to the words of Jesus. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He announces what he's here for. It's so that hurt people and empty people and dark people and broken people could experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and hope and the opportunity for a better life. His plan is to save sinners. This is God's great plan. And this is one of the great purposes of Jesus coming into the world. And so he says to the religious leaders return to the Bible return to the bible coach Vince Lombardi famously at a halftime when his team was losing he is in the locker room he holds up a football and he says gentlemen this is a football these are professional football players who've devoted their life to football it was his way of saying go back to the fundamentals go back to the basics And for many religious people, they've devoted themselves to religion. And somehow they've forgotten what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. They've forgotten about mercy and they've forgotten about compassion. Jesus quotes Hosea. And for those of you who are familiar with the book, you'll remember that Hosea was a man who married... Prostitute. The Bible uses the term whore. It's such an ugly word. It's such a descriptive word. And I think the reason why the Bible uses that descriptive word is because his, his marriage was a living illustration of the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel to God. Jesus is in effect saying, have you forgotten the revelation that God gave you in your own scriptures? How God desires that you exercise grace and mercy. Now, I want you to think about this. When he says, I desire mercy, does he desire it for himself? Does God ever need mercy? The answer is no, God is a perfect being. He is perfect and holy and just and pure. God is incapable of anything other than doing what's right. So when he says, I desire mercy, what does he mean? It must mean that he desires it from you for yourself and to each other. It's something that you give to yourself and that you give to others Why not be merciful, he's saying. Why be so judgmental? Why be so condemning? God is unchanging. Why would God desire mercy then, but not now? Without compassion, all of the duties and all of the sacrifices and all of the rituals and all of the observances become meaningless. It becomes meaningless for you to open up your Bible And not really believe what you're reading. It becomes meaningless for you to go to church if all you're going to do is rack up brownie points for God. That's not why we're here, and that's not what it's for. Without compassion, without mercy, we can't extend compassion and mercy to those who are trapped in sin. Look what Jesus says in verse 13, but go and learn what this means. He invites us to actually say, think about it. Think about what you're reading. Think about what it says. Think about for a moment what this means. I desire mercy. I think you know what mercy is. Mercy means getting what you don't deserve. You know the meaning. It means getting what you don't deserve. Have you ever had your picture taken and the photographer takes a picture and says, look, it looks just like you. And in a rage, you demand your money back and you say, this picture doesn't do me justice. And the photographer says, with a face like yours, you don't need justice, you need mercy. Mercy. This is what I tell everyone when they ask about me being on the radio. And I go, look, just look at me. Look at my face. Clearly, God does not want mercy, like I said, for himself. He wants us to be merciful. He wants us to admit our sin. And again, we might be in a situation where we go, well, I'll admit my mistakes. But if you... Admit your mistakes, but you don't admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, then guess what? You probably will never know the Savior. You know, once when Frederick II, a king in Prussia, went to on an inspection tour in a Berlin prison, he was greeted by the cries of the prisoners who fell on their knees and protested their unjust imprisonment. And while listening to these pleas of innocence, Frederick's eyes drew to a man who who was in a corner and he was sort of non-pulsed and he was nonchalant and he, he he didn't he was unconcerned with all of the commotion. And the and the emperor said to him, Why are you here? And the man replied, armed robbery, your majesty. Were you guilty? The king said, oh yes, indeed, your majesty. I entirely deserve my punishment. At that, Frederick summoned the jailer and he said, release this guilty man at once. I will not have him kept in this prison where he will corrupt all these innocent people who occupy it. What a picture of God's love and God's mercy and God's grace for us. He extends mercy to us. He gives us gifts like a king would give to another king. Jesus is condemning the self righteous. And telling them that without compassion you've proven yourself worse sinners than those you seek to condemn. At least the tax gatherers and the sinners make no pretense of righteousness. And what about you? Do you have unbelieving friends? Make believing friends? Who look at you and they go, I could never be like you. I, I could never be that good and that holy. And don't get me wrong, I'm not even for a moment suggesting that you not be good and that you not be holy. Or, or that, you, that you love the Lord and that you love grace and you love purity and you love righteousness. And you want to walk away from sin and you want to walk towards the true and the living God. But sometimes when people accuse us of being holier than thou, accusations fall into two categories, founded and unfounded. Sometimes we can pretend to be just a little bit better than we really are. And we're reluctant to say what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. But God has given to me grace, an amazing grace, so that I, Less, less, less than the least of all the saints should be given this great privilege to remind you of the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And so the king promotes a new standard of forgiveness and cleansing. Let's quickly look at verse 14. It says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? Now, Matthew's going to give two illustrations that change has to take place on the inside and not simply on the outside. God is interested in forgiving and cleansing, not just in the externals. And we're not sure how long it took for John's disciples to ask this question after this event, but Jesus reveals their motive. The Bible says there's one fast, a chosen fast, a prescribed fast. It took place on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. So in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it didn't say you have to... fast twice a week. It said you had to fast once. And basically what it said in that passage is that the children of Israel were called to humble themselves, which carried the idea of abstaining or depriving themselves from food. And so Jewish tradition said, well, look, if God is really happy about fasting once a year, can you imagine if we did it 52 times a year? Forget 52. Let's double that and do it 104 times plus the day of atonement. That's 105 times God's got to be really thrilled with that. But Jesus said, God never asked for that. Religious rituals can be hazardous to your health. Lighting candles isn't wrong. Even religious rituals might have some value, but they have no value whatsoever if your heart remains the same. If you emphasize the external over the internal, you run the risk of falling into the trap of self-righteousness. And so in verse 15, when it says, and Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Jesus is the bridegroom. His disciples are the friends of the bridegroom. There's an appropriate time to celebrate. There's an appropriate time to cease from celebration. And you know you're in trouble when you live in a culture that mourns what it should be celebrating and celebrates when it should be mourning. And so, there's an appropriate time to celebrate. And there's an... Appropriate time to refrain from celebrating. And Jesus says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the the tear is made worse. For many of us, that's an unfamiliar statement. But for those of you who at least grew up from 1880 to 1960, you'll remember the time when Levi's had pre-shrunk jeans and jeans, That if you take a pair of denim pants and you throw them into the wash, they shrink. So if you have an old, comfortable pair of Levi's that you've worn over and over and over and over again, and pretty soon it wears out and it has a hole, and you stick a brand new patch on it, and then you throw it into the wash and the patch will tear away because an unshrunk patch will create a deeper pair. And so the two illustrations, here's what he's basically saying. The two illustrations apply first to John's followers and then to Christ's followers. What's the chief concern of the Christian? Christ. What's the chief concern of the Jew? Judaism. What's the chief concern of the old covenant? Law. What's the chief concern of the new covenant? Grace. But imagine you live in a world dictated, determined and defined by the law you know you know what religion is it's really a series of the things that you can and can't do and jesus says i don't think so in verse 17, nor do they put new wine into an old wineskin, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into the new wineskins, and both are preserved. In the ancient world, when you, had, when you plucked grapes and you smashed the grapes before they fermented, you put them in new wineskins that were supple and soft and stretchy, sort of like spandex pants. They would stretch. You put the stretchy, you put the the liquid into the stretchy thing so that it will stretch. But if you put the new wine into the old wineskin, which is rigidified and calcified and hardened, what you wind up doing is spoiling both. The Lord Jesus isn't a patch to fix things up that are lacking in your worldview, and Jesus isn't just simply some new way of thinking about things. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. And just like Spurgeon used to say, think the most gracious thought that you can think in your mind. Think about the most wonderful things that you can think about Jesus, and guess what? He remains more wonderful. In your mind, you might think, what's the most wonderful thing that you can think about Jesus? He loves sinners. You would be right. And he died because he hates sin. The Lord is attracted to brokenness and he's repelled by self-righteousness. Why is he attracted to brokenness? Jesus is attracted to brokenness because he knows that the broken person will admit their need for him. And he's repelled by the self righteous because he knows that the self righteous will say, You know what? That's all well and good for you guys, but I'm fine just the way that I am. You know, I've put together a list of symptoms of self righteousness, it is very short. But number one coldness towards others. There's a reason why self righteousness is ugly. And it falls short of God's perfect righteousness. Because self-righteousness creates a mechanism not where you're warm towards God, but where you're cold towards God and you're cold towards other people. And this becomes a symptom of self-righteousness. It's proof positive that if you distance yourself from others, it's almost impossible not to distance yourself from God. Because no matter how orthodox you are or how orthodox you think your theology is, no matter how clinically precise the answers that you give to religious questions, if you don't like people and you don't care about them and you have no compassion for them, then you don't care about what God cares about. Coldness towards others. And then number two, condemnation of others. If you simply see people as... Innocent or guilty. If you simply see people as objects of punishment, objects of God's wrath, objects of a coming punishment, if you see them simply as a sinner, if you see them simply overtaken in sin without compassion, without mercy then it becomes evidence that you're not very far from self-righteousness. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Even to the religious leader, even to the religious leader, Jesus is saying, You're generous with God. You're generous with God. You will give God your time. You will give God your money. You will give God your fastings and religious rituals. And so Jesus says, Can you, will you be just as generous with others? Will you at least give them compassion? Will you at least give them mercy? Purity is more than just simply avoiding bad things and bad people. People purity is in, in part a willingness to love what he loves and to care about what he cares about. You know why I love this passage so much in the Matthew celebration so much. Because like Matthew, every once in a while, I'll wake up and I'll remember not only where I was and what I was doing when I got saved, but what I was. What I was. High school students on my campus would gather together and they made me a project. They looked out onto the campus and they said, who's the person least likely to go to heaven? And I got picked. And they began to pray for me. They prayed that God would cause the scales to drop from my eyes and that my heart would be open and that I would be willing to listen to the truth about Jesus. And then someone had enough nerve invite me to a Christian concert and then they prayed that I would say yes and then I went and I heard the gospel and I was saved purity is more than just avoiding bad people it has to be a willingness to see people as the objects of God's amazing grace deep compassion overwhelming mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your love and thank you for your grace. Lord, we pray that if the symptoms have started to take hold of our heart, coldness towards others and condemnation of others, that you would light us up. Lord, we know that the cure for a that kind of cold is is to generate some heat. And that instead of condemnation, Lord, our our lives would be marked by mercy, compassion, grace, generosity, and a willingness, a willingness, a willingness to point people to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that then they would hear what I had the privilege of hearing and what many people here have already heard, a real Jesus calling them, his voice speaking to them, inviting them to turn from their sin and to turn to the Savior and experience grace and mercy and life and hope. And so, Lord, again, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would do exactly that so that everyone would know you and everyone would love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.